Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. Today we're travelling east to Burma, a country that became a crucible of action in the Second World War. As World War II wore on, British administrators in Whitehall grew wary of reports from Burma. In comparison with operations against the Nazis in Europe, the fight against the Japanese in the Far East seemed more remote and far more complex. To many, it was much better not to overcommit to a place that was so filled with such strong and competing forces. But as 1943 turned into 1944, something spectacular was poised to happen in Burma. As today's guest, the historian Robert Lyman explains, at the heart of the action was the fabulous general William Slim and a new and incredibly effective Indian army. Robert Lyman is widely regarded as one of Britain's leading authorities on the Second World War. This week, his new book, A War of Empires, Japan, India, Burma and Britain, is published. I spoke to Rob just the other day. A warm welcome to our podcast, Rob Lyman. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. And this week, of course, is Remembrance Week when we pause to recall the sacrifices of previous generations. So it's a very good opportunity for me to begin with um, a question which links that to your book. I wanted to ask you, how is the Burma campaign remembered today, if indeed it's remembered much at all? What would you respond to that? It isn't really remembered. And um, and I've been concerned about this for many years, not just because it's not remembered in the UK and amongst those countries for whom... Um, we have a, a right and a duty to remember. It was our army, of course, fighting out there against the Japanese. It's not really remembered in India either. And that's, for me, an even greater concern because the majority of the army fighting the Japanese in 1944 and 45 were Indian. In fact, 87% of General Bill Slim's fantastic 14th Army were Indian. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Very briefly, the first reason is that following independence, a a narrative built up in India, a very um, common one, that uh, there wasn't any real history, Indian history, uh, prior to 1947, because it was tarnished both by the colonial oppressors and by the presence of Muslims who had been subsequently exported to Pakistan. And it's a very strongly Hindu-dominated narrative, uh, and it exists and it's quite powerful, And I think it's time that India rethinks its history because actually pre-partition India was a history of the subcontinent. It was the history of India and its peoples coming together. And even more importantly, it was a history of the Indian people as a whole, now in what has constituted Pakistan, India and Bangladesh, rising up and of their own volition, fighting the Japanese. India, in 1943, 44, 45, fought for their future, they fought for their freedom, and they eventually got it, and they fought the threat against it. 
And for all those reasons, we need to remember the war in the Far East and we need to rem- remember it over here. I mean, interestingly enough, Peter, during the um, the war, the the troops, uh, certainly the British troops, very early on came up with this idea that they were the forgotten army. And this simply came from the fact that when the newspapers from the UK finally arrived, six weeks after they were published at home, the boys would flick through them and see nothing in them about their campaign, their very, very significant campaign against the Japanese. Uh, And they then started calling themselves the forgotten army. Later in 1943, uh, Mountbatten, who became the Supreme Commander, Southeast Asia Command, sorted that out and appointed a uh, an editor, previous Fleet Street editor, Frank Owen, to uh, create a newspaper, the SEAC newspaper, which became phenomenally successful, actually. Frank Owen was a marvellous journalist, and he knew what the boys wanted, and he gave it to them in spades. And it's a very intel- it's very interesting reading copies of it now, because it's a very intelligent newspaper aimed at the boys and uh, their needs and concerns, their worries, but telling them about what was happening in the future. So that Forgotten Army idea came from then. It's a little bit of a myth now when you consider how much has been written about the Burma campaign subsequently. Um, the historiography of the campaign is now running at probably about twelve or 1,300 books. Most of them are captured in the Burma Campaign Memorial Library in SOAS in London. So there's, it's not forgotten anymore. But ha- having said that, in popular memory, it is still forgotten. I mean, if you if you just did a, I haven't done this, but I would imagine that if you did an analysis of all the books that are published every year on Normandy and Northwest Europe and compared them to all the books or the very small number of books published about the war in the Far East, uh, there'd be a massive difference. Mm. Well, th- th- one thing I was wondering is because in, in a way it's it's a messy narrative, isn't it? And this kind of goes right to the heart of the title of your book, A War of Empires. It's not a simple um, A versus mm. B conflict. And right from the yes. beginning, because I, I, when I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking about it and I, I had looked at... Um, uh, a BBC propaganda film from 1945 when they talk about the victory in Burma and they talk about behind the redemption of Burma lies the dramatic story that is a symbol of the United Nations in victory. Their triumph was achieved in a magnificent example of inter-allied cooperation. The combination of the British together with the Indian Army, American fighting men and engineers, Chinese, divis- uh, t- Chinese divisions, Burmese levies and many more whose deeds brought courage and hope to millions across the world. That just captures, doesn't it, how complicated a story that you've set out to tell is. I think it's a very good point, actually. Uh, It's quite a daunting task trying to get your head around all of this. Uh, To be fair, I've been doing it for 30 years. I mean, this book really is a culmination of 30 years of thinking and lecturing and talking and writing on the subject. Uh, it's been fascinating because as the years have gone by, not only have I learnt more, but I've understood more and I've understood the complexities of it. And of course, the the real, really important thing about all this, I mean, you've touched on it and that that, um, that propaganda, uh, it's a bit harsh to call it propaganda, but that, that publicity film from 1945 really does capture the essence of the achievement. Uh, if I just tell you that in 1945, Southeast Asia Command, that which was commanded by um, Lord Mountbatten, comprised 1.3 million men and women. Uh, Of that 1.3 million, 300,000, extraordinarily, 300,000 were Americans. And we often forget how important the Americans were to this entire story, not least of all because they gave the 
the engine power to the strategic requirement to support China. Included in that 1.3 million uh, were some Chinese troops, but that number was Southeast Asia Command, and it excluded the divisions um, thrown into battle against the Japanese by Chiang Kai-shek, with whom we were in strategic alliance. Um, and of those 1.3 million men, only about 100,000 were Britons. An extraordinary number. There were almost as many Africans in the in the Southeast Asia Command, about 90,000, as there were Britons. The remainder were Indians. And this is the extraordinary thing that's sort of been developing in my mind over the last quite some time, 8, 10, 12 years, that this really was India's war for lots of reasons, not just at a tactical level of fighting, um, but also at a political and a national level. And the reason for this is very simple. One might ask, why did so many men, primarily men, but also women, join the Indian Armed Forces after the fall of Singapore uh, in February 1942, when everything seemed to be over for the empire? They joined, I argue, because they were fighting for the government of India, which was defending India's territorial um, borders and its interests, and they were fighting for the future. They were fighting for what they could make India become. And they weren't fighting for the Raj, not at all. In fact, no one at the time even used the word Raj. It was the government of India. There's another word for government of India, which was in widespread use. Rajas tend to come into, it was really a, a um, and uh, an East India Company term and also a term that we've come to use more often uh, um, in the last few years. But actually, Indians didn't see themselves as being... Um, subdued or coerced by the Raj, they were obeying the call of their government. And I think there's a really important point in all of this uh, as we rethink the, the Far East. And I'll come back to some of the nuances in a moment. But one of the really important things for me is recognising that we have in all of us an essential, at least a duality. We can understand, even if we are nationalistically inclined, we, we can also understand, actually, there's a threat to my welfare and well-being and my security, and I'm going to have to do something about it, even if it means allying myself to someone I don't particularly like doing. We do that every day. It's, it's, it's a function of our human nature. We're very good at uh, coming to these judgments and applying them in a personal way, and we're also very good at doing it in a political way. And that's exactly what happened in the Second World War in India. Uh, men and women who were nationalistically inclined, and uh, General Orkleg, who was the commander-in-chief of India, a British officer in the Indian Army from 1943, that's when he's commander-in-chief, made the comment that he would expect all Indian officers in his army to be nationalists. And it's a fantastic point. Not only were they nationalists, he would expect them to be proud of and want to have their own secure future for India, um, but they were doing so at a time when they recognised that there was an existential threat to India from Japan. Many, many years ago, I interviewed uh, an Indian veteran of the war who, in a moment, uh, switched on the light bulb in my head. And he said, when I asked him about why he joined the Indian Army, with that uh, assumption, I think, resonating my voice that he was joining a foreign army, he said, he looked at me after he paused a moment, he looked at me and he said, Rob, you need to understand we were terrified of Japan. Uh, we, we knew all about Nanjing. Nanking. We knew about the, the rape of Nanking in 1937. We knew about Japanese depredations in China. He said, Rob, we read the newspapers. 
and he joined up and, and became a hurricane pilot, in fact. And he said, all my friends from school, he was 18 and, or 19 in 1939, 1940, we all joined up when we realised just how close the Japanese were. And the Japanese were very close. They invaded Burma in 1940. Uh, they invaded India, rather, in 1944, a fact that we should not forget. And yet India has largely forgotten and the world indeed has also forgotten. People don't know of the Burma campaign or the Far East campaign because it's very, it's very easy to get confused about terminology. So the way to think about it is the war in the Far East was focused on Burma, even though much of the fighting also happened in India. It was the war on the Far East. It's the kind of crucible, of, the Far the East crucible of action, isn't it? That's the... Yes, exactly right. But we, we often um, abbreviate it to the Burma campaign. And to the right-hand side, as you're looking at the map, you've got the Pacific campaign led by the Americans. And to the, uh, to the left of India, you've got the Middle East campaign under the control of the British. The Far East is an important cog in a global war. And it's an important, a really important cog because this is actually where they... There were two foci, two key points of action by the Japanese. One was defending their Pacific islands, controlling the Pacific, and the other was defending their uh, the possessions that they'd captured in their coup de main attack in December 1941, early 1942. And um, it was largely split between the Far East under British command and the Pacific under Admiral King under American command. But that's just a little bit of terminology to get everyone's heads around uh, the titles. But the focus for us was Burma, was the recovery of Burma. And interestingly enough, it was the recovery of Burma, not because it was a British colony. It was the recovery of Burma because it was a fundamental stepping stone into China. It was the route by which American primarily resources could travel into China. That was the strategic purpose of the campaign. So whilst we... Um, have forgotten some parts of the Burma campaign. We've actually really forgotten the strategic dimension to it, the, the reason for it, the rationale for Allied operations in, in the area in the yeah, first the, place. Yeah, the point I was um, j that was just passing through my mind is kind of one that fits on the tail of my last, which is that we said before it's um, it's quite a daunting task to look at this particular episode in history because it's it's messy but it's it's also is so rich there are all these different protagonists there's different points of view which you can take and i, I suppose that's the reason why you've been able to sustain an interest in this over such a long period of time and it's actually actually really satisfying for the reader to get the benefit of that when you're going through that you do and i think this is something that you don't actually always get in in history books and something that maybe challenges us today in the way that we have a very um, first person kind of interpretation of the world. We, we live in our heads. So it's quite difficult sometimes to empathise with the other. And at one point, I think you, you actually point out, well, hang on, we've got to actually think about the, the Japanese as well. He, what, what were they thinking? And we have um, some quite interesting um, scenes which take us right inside the Japanese military machine where d decisions are being made once um, when uh, someone's in the bath. I'm trying to remember which particular um, episode that was. Yes, uh, Mutaguchi in particular. <laughs> uh, it, it, do you know what, what, what a very um, perspicacious comment you, you've made, Peter. That, that's absolutely right. I think that the problem is with history is that we need more often than we do to start to stop and to ask ourselves the questions, but why did they make that decision? It is too easy to apply a template from our own experience to the past and to assume that people behave and think in the same way 
then that they do now, and it's, it is completely wrong. And it's a lesson I've learned over the years. I, I'm, I was, I think, in my early years as a historian, uh, quite uh, quick to judgment. I, I have learned um, to be a little bit calmer and to understand the context more. In fact, I bang on quite a lot, certainly when I'm teaching, uh, about the need to really, really appreciate the entire context of the environment. And one of the classic cases in this book is the entire context of Japanese militarism. In fact, um, I will come back to the, that at the end because militarism was the at the heart of Japanese behavior. It ran through the entire civic DNA of Japan as a culture. There were some very cultural people in Japan, but militarism wasn't something to to be ignored. In fact, it was very, very important. And and the behavior of the Japanese commanders in Burma was really quite extraordinary. I must move us into our format now because we, I mean, I could talk to you about this for, for the whole afternoon. It's fascinating, but we have some business at hand. And it begins by um, me asking you a question that I always put to people when they come on the podcast, which is, if I could give you the opportunity to travel back to a year in the past, and it's going to be a year in this story, I know, which one would you select? And I know there's going to be a slight asterisk. To well, I'm going to I, I, I'm going to I'm going to give you a caveat in response. <laughs> I love the format, by the way, and I've really enjoyed thinking about it in, in preparation for this. I am, of course, going to go for 1944. It's the year of um, it's the year in which the situation in the Far East completely changes. Certainly for the Allies, from better from bad to to, to good, it's uh, it's certainly improved dramatically. And for the Japanese side, it goes from very good to, to very bad. It's the year of culmination. It's the year in which um, all the disasters of 1942, the disasters for the Allies associated with the Japanese invasion of the Far East, are overturned, are overcome. And I spend quite a lot of time in the book just answering, uh, trying to answer those questions, why it was that a dramatic transformation took well, the, place. Well, the years that you cover in your book are really 1941 to 45, but with a focus more specifically on 42 to 44. And there's kind of bits, um, there's bits of the other years in there as well. But I think we did say 1944, but we have a little bit of an asterisk against it because it's such an important scene in this story. So we're going to allow it for, uh, for you today. And of course, every story like this needs to have its kind of um, leading cast of characters and there is one in particular which kind of personifies this whole story more than anybody else so you're going to take us to meet him at this moment where do you want to go first please well i'm going to go to the chinwin river it's a few months before 1944 so it's december 1943 mm. uh the chinwin is effectively the border between um burma on the right and india on the left and the, the province uh, is manipur and uh, it's an incident where General Bill Slim, who was the newly uh, appointed commander of the new 14th Army, which had been raised to fight the Japanese, had an opportunity to meet men of the new Indian Army. Now, these were men from a battalion of about 700 men of the Madras Regiment. They were the divisional uh, defence battalion of the 23rd Indian Division, and they were uh, on the Chindwin in defensive positions uh, with the Japanese only a few miles away across the water. Now, this is quite an extraordinary scene. 
And it's in the book. Uh, and it's in the book, and I should I've I should used, point out uh, that it reads almost like a piece of fiction because you have dialogue in there. There's <laughs> kind of rich description. There's this character Slim who. I'd only ever really known in hologrammatic form. He's kind of got a great name, so General Slim sounds sounds almost like a Johnsonian character, doesn't he? The, and that's all I knew about him. But reading this, I think it's like a little prologue to this um, section in the book. He comes across absolutely extraordinary. It is extraordinary for lots and lots of reasons, and I'll try and keep this short, but uh, it is very exciting. The protagonist is a man called John Twells, who's a, a, a young officer, lieutenant in the Gurkha Rifles. And he, for some reason, has attached to the Madras Regiment for, a, for a, a time. And he observes all the Indian soldiers as this great man, that their army commander turns up. Now, they don't know that he's a great man. In fact, he is he's actually unknown to them, to Bill Slim. Bill Slim uh, had been in Burma since 1942 and actually was one of the reasons why the British and in British Army and the Indian Army were able to recover themselves so dramatically. He was an extraordinary character, but he had sh- huge uh, human sense about him. He understood how humans worked, which is not something you can always say about every general. So he's remarkable in that respect. But I think the point about this particular occasion was that General Slim stood up in front of the man and said, I'm going to speak to you in three languages and I'm going to explain what we're doing, what you're doing here and what's going to happen in the future. He then um, proceeded to tell them in Hindi and English and probably um, um, Gurkhali as well, or might have been uh, Urdu, it's very hard to tell, um, that the Japanese were only a few miles across the river, but in two or three months' time, they were going to invade India. But they were not to worry because he had a plan. And his plan, he told them, was to withdraw out of the path of the enemy and back into the hills of Manipur around the Imphal Plain, where the Japanese would be extended and vulnerable. And that's exactly what happened. And the extraordinary thing is here we have General Slim telling the soldiers of a new Indian battalion, private soldiers who had only been in the army less than a year, in various languages, what the plan was. Now, I've never, ever come across anything like that. I mean, very smart soldiers like Montgomery in the Second World War learnt that the more he told the boys on the ground face-to-face, the more he would trust them. Slim seemed to know this intuitively. And um, one of the soldiers said back to Slim, aren't you scared, aren't you concerned that this message will get to the Japanese? And Slim said, no, I trust you. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And the extraordinary thing is... um, Subsequent to all of this, of course, it all happened exactly as Slim had planned and as Slim had told them. But the other really interesting thing about this plan was that it was an unusual plan. Remember, by 1944, we'd done a lot of retreating in the British Army uh, to, to this date, and the idea of retreating any further was not held uh, in high esteem by anyone in Delhi or London. And when Slim put his plan together, it wasn't accepted by all, but he uh, he stood his ground. His new boss, Lord Mountbatten, agreed with him. And the idea was <clears throat> essentially to withdraw in the face of the Japanese advance, to wear them down, to be able to get to a final point in the Imphal Plain where he didn't need to withdraw any further. He would be, or his 14th Army would be reinforced by air and that his effectively his lines of communication, as they're called, would be short and the Japanese would be extended. The Japanese had a, a, a penchant, as you will know when you read the book, for 
aggressive advances. They used to call them, the, 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 the name of them was Kiramuni Sekusen, which was a lightning advance. They had lot, learnt a lot actually from Blitzkrieg in 1940. In fact, General Yamasha had visited France and had been taken around the battlefields by uh, German officers. And he knew, and he seemed to think that the way to defeat the Jap, the, the British was always by this Kiramuni Sekusen. In this occasion, on this occasion, however, and by this time in the war, the Japanese had completely failed to understand the nature of the dramatic change that occurred in the Allied armies and were not in any way, shape or form expecting the response that they got when they invaded Manipur in 1944. It was really a, quite a dramatic shock to them. And um, Slim was quite happy to tell the soldiers of the, this battalion what was going to happen. And history has now, well, history very quickly demonstrated that this was the right plan. Well, it's not the just the right plan. As you know, um it's one thing having a plan, it's another thing executing it. And communication is so important. Um, I don't know, from your knowledge of military leaders at this time within the British Army, or maybe you could say even today, is there anybody else who could have done what he did if you were to substitute Slim with a different general? I mean, there's there's a nice... Before I let you answer that, actually, I'm going to give you a nice snippet from his speech, which is um, maybe it's a little bit of flattery in here. But it does kind of dovetail with what you were explaining before about the creation of this new Indian army, which is such a central point in your book. He says, and, and he's in, he's addressing the troops directly here. So he says, the Indian army, over two million men, all voluntarily recruited, is the greatest volunteer army the world has ever known. An army in which all races, all castes, all regiments, all men are equal and have freely volunteered to rid the world um, of tyranny. This is almost Jeffersonian. Uh, all India, it is, <laughs> all India it? can take pride of that. And um, we can all take um, pride in our service. He's he's just, uh, I suppose, he, he seems to have an inner charisma, which he's, he's able to transmit and not just transmit it to people of his own kind of tribe, if I can use that in an anthropological sense, you know, to, to all sorts of people. Uh, yes, I, I, I love that. Uh, it is absolutely right. I, I wrote um, my PhD on so many, many years ago. Uh, it was published as a book called Slim Master of War. And um, I refer back to it in this current book. But it's very interesting that Slim... Um, was very, very well. He was a, an officer in the Indian Army. He transferred after the First World War from the Warwickshire Regiment via a circuitous route into the Six Gurkha Rifles. And he always saw himself as an Indian officer or an officer in the Indian Army. Um, uh, when he had an opportunity in 1942 to sit down and, and think through the lessons of the retreat from Burma 1942 and to work out a way of defeating the Japanese, he started with a, a an understanding of human nature and he's he's he said to himself the soldiers that we recruit into the new army to defeat the japanese need to have a spiritual perspective they need to understand that why they're fighting and that there is a moral good attached to it and he said this is very easy to do because the japanese were so totally alien their way of war fighting was so brutal and effectively unacceptable. So he created what he described as a spiritual structure. There was a very clear ethos and, and set of values around the army that he was building. He said, all my soldiers also need to have a very clear understanding intellectually of what we're trying to do. We need to know what we're doing. We need to know how to fight the Japanese. We need to know their strengths and weaknesses. We need to know how to respond to them. So our doctrine, our tactics and all that sort of stuff this deeply mental stuff associated with thinking needs to be perfected. 
And a lot of thinking in 1943, uh, a lot of time rather, was spent trying to understand how best to defeat the Japanese. And or to, to very you kind of effect. imagine almost that if he was alive today, he'd be a pretty good CEO or something like that. Because <laughs> he's well, interesting enough, at the end of the Second World War, he was recruited to be the, the, the effectively the chief executive of British Rail. He didn't last long because the, the government under Attlee brought him back and he became chief of the Imperial General Staff. Yes, I mean, absolutely fantastic. Uh, director of the board. Very, very important. And then his third pillar was material. We needed to have the right things. And he said, of course, there's no way that I'm going to be able to, with the Germany first policy, be able to get all the things that I need in the Far East. I'm going to have to make do with what I can do myself. And that itself is just really a quite extraordinary thing. The lines of communication, when you you think about the length of the um, operations in geographical terms, we're talking about trying to fight a war around Warsaw from London. It's really quite extraordinary. When the when his army got to the Chindwin in nineteen in December nineteen forty four, he had no boats to cross the Chindwin, so he built them himself. He built five hundred and fifty ten ton barges from trees that the army felled from along the Chindwin to cross the river. Five hundred and fifty ten ton barges. I mean that's a measure of this guy's greatness, he was able to put in place a huge infrastructure with very good leaders to be able to do the impossible and to carry the men with him. And I think the um, I think the really telling thing is that Indian soldiers loved him. They came up with this phrase, Uncle Bill. It didn't come from British soldiers. It came from Chacha Slim Saab. Uncle That's nice, Bill. and it kind of goes to what I was about to ask you, which Indian is friends. whether he was respected in his own time. I suppose a slight different um, take on that is whether he was respected in his own time by his fellow officers. We can maybe get on to that in a minute, because I know we're going to go and have a look at Whitehall in a moment. But there's a nice quote that I, I, um, I know that you have uh, mentioned when talking about Slim before, which is, never forget the smell of a soldier's feet, which is, um, which yes. is, um, I'm not quite sure how to, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of Wellingtonish kind of thing to say, isn't it? It's very Wellingtonish. Yes. I mean, it is just talking about Wellington. It's very interesting way back. And I can never remember the date. It was either 2011 or 2013. The National Army Museum held in, the, in London held a national debate for, as to who was Britain's greatest general. And, um, uh, John Snow, Dan's dad, and I came equal with him presenting Wellington and me presenting Slim. And we laughed about it afterwards because actually the, the, uh, Slim, I think, was, a, was, they were both great men, but they both recognised that the power that they wielded was through the, the smell of the soldiers' feet, as through the men who fought for them. And, and it was entirely driven by the willingness of these men to sacrifice their all for the common well, common this aim. Is, and it's very, very rare to see it. This is what makes this scene so charged with narrative power, I think, because you do have a great um, operation about to commence, but at the, at the heart of it, you have this figure who, as you explained there, ranks among one of the greatest figures in um, military history from, from Britain's point of view. And... Um, He's communicating effortlessly, if I can say that. He's communicating well, let's put it that way, because I can say that. And um, to be there to see it would be quite something, I imagine. Well, that's that's why I, I'm, I'm glad that you had um, picked up on this. It's, it's, it is one of the seminal moments in the book. 
you know, for all the reasons that I've described. And if I was ever given the opportunity of going back to a point in time, I, you know, I would go back there and I'd like to sit there and li- watch and listen, uh, knowing the future, of course, knowing, uh, seeing seeing the, the power that this man had. It was a power of words. It was a power of trust. It was a power of attitude and commitment and confidence. And the interesting thing is all these young men from Madras, for goodness sake, believed it. They believed it. And many years ago, 1999, I interviewed George MacDonald Fraser from House in the Isle of Man. And he said much the same thing. He said, the interesting thing is when we were visited by Slim, which happened on a couple of occasions, Slim told us uh, what had happened. You know, he told us what was happening and he told us what would happen. He said, you know, every time he did that, it happened. And we then knew that we could trust him which is a, a really interesting measure of success for a, for a general. Let's keep going forward. We've got um, two more to get through. The next one, um, do you want to take us? We're going to um, exchange Asia for somewhere quite different. We're going to go back to London and we're going to sit in the office of the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, General Sir Alan Brooke, uh, in the War Office in Whitehall. The building still stands. It's used for different purposes now, but... This was where uh, all uh, operations for British Armed Forces were uh, managed around the world. And although responsibility for military strategy and the direction of operations in the Far East actually sat with Mountbatten, Admiral Mountbatten in Kandy, in Ceylon, as it was then, um, clearly Sir Alan Brooke was really interested and, and uh, really concerned about the, the, the fighting. Now, the Japanese invasion of India began on about the 14th or 15th of March. There were, there were some operations before then. But if we say it's the middle of March, by the end of April 1944, it was clear to everyone fighting on the ground that the Japanese bolt had been shot. Uh, it was to take quite a considerable amount more fighting to completely defeat the Japanese, but they had lost the battle. And the war after, the, the fighting rather in Manipur from the end of April onwards, was a slaughter of Japanese manhood. It was, it was one of the great tragedies in modern times that the Japanese would uh, swap a poor plan for the lives of their soldiers, and they did it repeatedly in the Far East. Why is, in June, Sir Alan Brooke sitting down writing in his diary, I'm really concerned about the fighting in Manipur, uh, around Imphal. It doesn't seem to be getting us anywhere. Now, that's really quite extraordinary because this is two months after the the war effectively had gone Britain's way in the Far East. It was simply a matter of continuing the fighting and mopping up the Japanese and making sure that Mutaguchi retreated across the channel with as few troops as he could. And, and it says a lot at a number of levels about the relationship between the British Army and the Indian Army. There had been a very long um a, a, a deep-seated prejudice in many places in Britain towards the Indian Army, reflected not least of all by Winston Churchill. Um, and it's very sad because actually this is very unfair. The Indian Army in 1944 was pulling Britain's irons out of the fire in the Far East and defeating the Japanese in a way that had never been expected. And it took and perhaps I was just going to say it took a long time for anyone in London to understand that. I don't think they ever did. And I think this is evidence of Sir Alan Brooke in June either not being briefed or not understanding the briefs that he was getting from Mountbatten. 
Yeah, um, I, I was thinking uh, that there's either, it seems yes. like there's two interpretations that you can, well, two central ones that you can put on that. First of all, there's really poor communications and they're not on the ground and they don't quite, they haven't gathered the detail for some reason. But that seems, I don't, I mean, you did say before that the troops had this great stagger of time before they received newspapers from home. So there must have been some level of disruption. Um or, yes, as you say, it's something to do with a prejudice against the ability of the armies that are, that are fighting. They don't have the full confidence. Yes, the there's a little bit about, yes, uh, there's a little bit about the prejudice, but there's also, it's really important to to note that um, the war in the Far East was a very low priority. Well, it was a lower priority than the war against Japan. and And you could just imagine after a very heavy day, Alan Brooks sitting in his office, getting a, a two-page memorandum from uh, from Candy and skimming it, and not spending a huge amount of time in and really understanding. And we have to remember as well, sorry, that this, this is happening at the same time as yes. Overlord and all these operations in Europe. Exactly right. This this is exactly right. This is a, this is the first of June, nineteen forty-four. So it's five days before the invasion of um, of Europe and D-Day, and. Effectively, London had outsourced the problem of defending the Far East to India and to uh, Mountbatten and Kandy and were just receiving briefs. But they completely misjudged and misunderstood the nature of the dramatic change to the Indian army and the dramatic successes that were even then being wrought against the Japanese in the Far East. Never really fully understood it. It's very interesting when Wavell, who was now the Viceroy of India, he had been the Commander-in-Chief uh, until June 1943, so this is a year later, when he came to Imphal to inspect the battlefield in October 1944, so he had been out of it um, for, out of military command for 18 months, he said, I didn't really understand this battle. It seems to be fought in little penny packets. So he was one of the greatest military minds of the age, so far as the British were concerned, not really understanding what Slim and his 14th Army had managed yeah, to do. it's fascinating, isn't I, it? It does. It always comes back to this fact, what would have happened had we not had mm. Slim? And that's another... But I suppose in a way there's a, it, it is a, a two-edged sword because I imagine this lack of scrutiny or day-to-day -day interest in what's going on might actually amplify Slim's ability to do whatever. He can be a bit more maverick. He can come up with plans as he wishes. That's exactly right. He 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 really was given a free hand. I mean, certainly in 1944, that was the case. At the end of 1944, a new organiser... His commander actually wasn't Mountbatten. It's a very interesting set of dynamics here because throughout 1944, Slim actually reported to Sir George Gifford, who was head of the 11th Army Group. But George Gifford was a nice old duffer who basically let Slim get on with it because he knew he was delivering. And Slim created a really effective relationship with Mountbatten. He never ignored Gifford, but, but he often just went directly to Gifford's boss, Mountbatten, and the two got on very well. Um, now, Gifford left in November 1944 and was replaced by a new commander, commander of a new organisation called Allied Land Force of Southeast Asia, uh, Sir Oliver Lees, who had been commander of the 8th Army in Italy. Now, he had been sent off from Italy. Um, he hadn't really done as well as people, as Alexander had hoped, and... Uh, he was effectively promoted upstairs to command Alfsi, but he turned up in the Far East with what Slim described as sand in his shoes from uh, North Africa and so on, and started to, to, to dictate terms and to 
believed that, as indeed he had, the right to create the plans to fight the Japanese. But sadly, Oliver Lees wasn't streetwise enough to understand how things had worked in the Far East and were still working, and the importance of Slim to the construction of Mountbatten's plans. And um, they fell out, big style, and Oliver Lees tried to sack Slim. Uh, Mountbatten didn't deal with it very well, and Slim, and Lees himself was then sacked by, uh, in turn, by Allenbrook when he heard about it. Allenbrook fired a rocket back to, to Candy and told Mountbatten to sack, sack Lees and appoint Slim in his place. Because even though in June 1944, Allenbrook didn't really understand what was going on, within a few months he recognised the true value of what had been achieved and the architect of that success, which was Slim. Really quite an extraordinary set of stories. But you are right at the heart of this. Um, Slim had the ability to do things in the Far East and to get away with stuff because no one was telling them to do otherwise. And Mountbatten just signed off on his plans and his, uh, his ideas. Hi there, it's Artemis. Today's episode is supported by a much-admired British press, Osprey Publishing. For half a century, from their base in Oxford, Osprey have been publishing books by the finest military historians centering on cutting-edge scholarship, as well as Robert Lyman's A War of Empires. In the run-up to Christmas, they are releasing Anthony Tucker Jones's Churchill, Master and Commander, Winston Churchill at War 1895-1945, a study of the defeat of Army Group South in 1944 by Prit Batar called The Reckoning, and a fascinating biography of the last Viking, Howard Hadrada by Don Holloway. You can check out all of these titles on their website, www.ospreypublishing.com. Well, let's go to your third scene then, because I think we see the culmination here of exactly what you're talking about. And it's again, well, there's a few things I want to ask you about here. So where are we going to go first? Um, can you tell us, please? Yes, we're going to go down to the, it's called, uh, we're going back to the Chindwin River. Uh, it's not far from the, the first scene in December 1943. This is exactly a year later. And this is, an, actually, it's not, it's a little bit earlier. It's the 10th of September 1944. And it's a place called Satong. And Satong was where men of the 11th East African Brigade, men of the 14th Army, reached the Chindwin for the first time following the great battles of Imphal. They pushed on down to the Chindwin to chase the Japanese across the river and to establish bridgeheads themselves. So this is a really important um, part of the story, really, really important for a number of reasons. First of all, they're African soldiers. African soldiers had um, been recruited through 1942 and 43 and had arrived in the Far East in great numbers. And there were two full Indian, uh, sorry, African brigades, the 81st um, and the 83rd West African divisions and the East, 11th East African Brigade. And they played a very significant role in the war, a, a role that has, to all intents and purposes, been forgotten. And it's a great tragedy in our analysis of the war to realise how little we know of what the the West and the East Africans achieved in Burma. And I don't have the time to, to go through that today, but I do describe it in the book. It really is quite an extraordinary series of, of affairs. But here we have an East African brigade arriving at the Chinwen, having the Japanese at the end of their bayonet, at the end of their bayonets crossing the river. Another quick point to say 
for those who aren't aware, the great battles in Manipur in 1944, from May, 19, May 1944 through to October, were fought in the monsoon. Now, the monsoon really is a dramatic impediment to life. Uh, in the uh, in this area, depending on what particular part of the, the hills you're in, you can get as much as four or five hundred inches of rain a year, and it all arrives during the monsoon. So to put that into the context, into context, if you're listening to this podcast in the UK, we get 34 or 35 inches a year. So the amount of water that cascades through these mountains is just really quite extraordinary. And the 14th Army fought through the monsoon and pushed the Japanese back across the Chinwin from September through to December 1944. So here we have a complete reversal of fortunes. Japanese had arrived in March, they'd been smashed in Manipur, they were then forced back uh, across the Chinwin in December and at the hands of an Indian and African army. Mm. When I um, started this conversation, I said, I didn't know much about this campaign before I read your book, but one thing I did know and one thing that was always um, mentioned was that that, that that Burma was the one place you really didn't want to be sent. The fighting, <laughs> exactly. the fighting was horrific there. I mean, apart from the brutality of the the Japanese, who had been fighting for longer than beyond nineteen thirty nine, they'd been fighting for a long time, so they'd grown, I suppose, um, used to to combat in different ways. But there was the casualties. There was malaria. There was jaundice. There was dysentery. There was scrub typhus. There was jungle sores. This is, and even when you look through the photographs that you have in your plate sections in the book, it's quite, it feels like, I don't know, the Western front of the First World War seems kind of pleasant by comparison. Is that correct? Or is this just... That a... is absolutely correct. And I, I, I because I've been there so many times, I, I, I start to forget this. But of course, not only have we got really, really hilly terrain, these are the foothills of the Himalayas running from the Brahmaputra Valley through to the Chindwin. Um, uh, they're five to seven thousand feet high. They're because they're relatively low. They're covered in jungle. It rains like billio between May and October, and all of the diseases you described are horrendous. In fact, in 1942, for every one soldier killed or injured by the Japanese, 120 went sick, mainly because of malaria. One of the things that Slim put in place in 1942-43 were prophylactic and support processes for malaria and. It was a, a really, really key part of being victorious in 1944-45. And the Japanese ignored malaria whatsoever, entirely and suffered dramatically as a consequence. Um, but it was it was for all those reasons that this was a very difficult place to fight. And not least of all the fact that the, the, the soldiers thought they were, well, they were a long way from home, but they thought that they weren't supported in the way that they considered themselves and this is they the forgotten army idea forgotten again. Army, yes. Yeah, yes. which brings us back to that. But I suppose, in our in an in a very strong way, our our ideas about that kind of um, of fighting has been very much coloured by the Vietnam War, which obviously came later. And we have these great cautionary exclamation marks, which kind of arise in our minds whenever you think of these things. But you argue in the book that Slim did the right thing by going in, because I know in Whitehall there was um, a preference for, you know, kind of steadily, steadily. And um, he he was very intent on taking the northern part of the country, wasn't he? And that's exactly what uh, yes. happened. That's exactly what happened. I mean, it was, this all stemmed back to 1942, where actually Slim knew 
that the Japanese weren't supermen, they could easily be defeated so long as he had the right, you know, properly trained troops with the right equipment. And he always had the idea, quite correctly, that actually the Japanese had a penchant for overextending themselves. And if they could be overextended, they could then be defeated in detail. And that's exactly what happened in 1944. Um, Whitehall, so and particularly Churchill, had no interest really in getting back into Burma, although there was a strategic imperative to do so, to support the Chinese and to restore the Burma road. What Churchill wanted to do was to launch an amphibious attack against Rangoon and avoid being caught up in Burma altogether. He called it, uh, on one famous occasion, akin to jumping in the sea to fight a shark or to wrestle with a shark, or in another phrase, to to remove the the um, the quills from the porcupine quill by quill, something like that. You know, it didn't really. It wasn't an attractive uh, proposition, and yet Slim knew that with the defeat of Mutaguchi's Fifteenth Army, nineteen forty four, the ideal opportunity for retaking Burma came by following on Mutaguchi's coattails, capturing northern Burma, the the, the area down to Mandalay, um, which was incidentally the area where the Chindits had been involved in early nineteen forty four and then pressing down with his new army to Rangoon. So just to give you an idea of the scale, or the geographical scale, from Rangoon, to, from Mandalay to Rangoon, we're talking about the same distance as from Paris to Marseille. So a, a massive a massive commitment and task. And yet Slim knew that he would be able to do it with his new army, certainly with um, the way in which the army had been reconstructed. And this is really quite an extraordinary thing to think about as well. The defensive army, the battles that he fought in 1944, were battles that were largely infantry-based, lots of artillery and some tanks. In 1945, where he had have to fight a war of manoeuvre, he needed to rebuild his army around armoured divisions and armoured corps with Sherman tanks, a mobile infantry, mobile armour, all connected to effectively cab ranks of um, close air support aircraft flying above them and operating as an integrated whole. And you might think that this was something that would take a very long time to design and to plan and to train people to do it. By 1945, the Indian divisions in Burma were operating in the same, exactly the same way, with the same degree of effectiveness as Allied uh, troops were operating in France, fully integrated armoured formations advancing and defeating the enemy. It's really quite an extraordinary testament to the Indian soldiers who formed the bulk of that army and who made it happen. And Slim also knew that the Japanese by this stage hadn't thought through what it needed to do to fight the British. We had come on so much relative to where the Japanese were and Slim knew their weak points and exploited them ruthlessly in 1945. I mean, I do come back to this a number of times. It really was a great tragedy that so many Japanese were killed unnecessarily. Uh, they, they, they died on the whole in 1945 because they were seriously outclassed by the Allies. Mm. And you make the point as well that really, while the Japanese were incredibly effective in the early 1940s, they didn't really adapt as a fighting force at all. It was still the same army in 1944 as, as it had been a few years earlier. And therefore, we get this kind of tale of two armies, don't we? Which is, um, I suppose, one of the central dynamic, dynamics in the book, which which is the pivot. But let me ask you one last question um, about Uncle Bill, because I feel like he's the star of, of this show. <laughs> Um, he is or actually, maybe, yes. well, maybe he is, and maybe it's the Indian Army. Who could who could say that the two of them together? But is he um, remembered with any 
sense of affection in India today uh, because oh, yes. of that bond that there oh, was yes. between him and his troops? Or is this something you're trying to rectify with the book indeed? Um, well, I'm trying to uh, bring it to a, wide, uh, to a wider audience. Um, he is, for those who know, Slim is regarded in India as the man who saved India and, um, and who commanded an Indian army to do that. And that's absolutely right. And Slim was very, very hard, you know, when I was doing my PhD to try to be objective about him. I think I was as much as is humanly possible to do. And I identified him warts and all. But the decisions he made, so the military strategic decisions he made were all the right ones. They were all the right calls, even though they were hard ones to make. Um, and as we described earlier, he was able to do it by keeping his Indian soldiers around him and believing in him. And that's always the key thing for a general. Generals are supposed to be leaders. The only way you can be a leader is to have followers. And followers are individuals who voluntarily and of their own volition decide to follow you. They don't follow you because they're told to. That That's not the definition of leadership. And Slim was able to have that triumvirate linked together very well and very successfully. Uh, and without Slim, uh, I'm convinced that we wouldn't have had anywhere near the degree of success, if at all, in the Far East. He was able to, to fight the Japanese at a military strategic level and an operational level and a tactical level, uh, whilst at the same time uh, rebuilding the army and pulling together and giving it an esprit de corps that was, was second to none. So, yes, in India, for those who know, Bill Slim is is well regarded, as indeed he is in the UK. And um, it's very interesting. People ask me, well, could you have taken Slim out of the Far East and put him in Europe? Um, and would he have been as successful as Monty? Uh, I think absolutely. And I think actually, to be fair to Monty, vice versa. You know, Monty was a very good organiser. He and he was a very good thinker and was very actually very successful in the 24th Army Group. He irritated a few people, but, you know, that's what comes with the job. That's, that's and I think things it's, done, yeah. Yes, exactly. It was, you know, he had to get a job done in 11 months and did a remarkable job in, in doing so in Northwest Europe. But I think Slim would have done a very good job in Northwest Europe with the tools that he had. It's a wonderful full counterfactual history, isn't it? You could have some, I don't know, you'd have to sit down with a piece of paper and work it out. But from what you're describing, absolutely, yes, if it comes down to qualities and, and personal traits, he has them. Well, I think that the point that was actually made by Ronald Lewin in his biography of um, Slim in 1976 uh, uh, was that Slim was able to do all this with nothing, with very little equipment. And I think that's the real measure of his achievement in the Far East, that he, he was able to do it by making everything up as he went. So when they ran out of silk parachutes, they made them out of cotton or jute, you know, quite extraordinary they they and when they ran out of parachutes they did lots of free drops they and they built boats they built roads they did things that were really quite extraordinary when you look at them now in detail uh, there, there was no waiting on resources there was no waiting to do an operation because they didn't have the resources they made it happen and um that was quite an extraordinary thing. It's an enthralling story. It's all here in a war of empires, along with maps, with chronologies, with, um, you know, as I said, these uh, little prologues which feel like a, a change of pace. It's a, it's a book which is going to absorb many a reader. But I've got one last question before I let you come back to the year 2021, which is uh, when the book is being released, of course. Um, if I allowed you to bring one tangible memento back from the year 1944, is there anything from this, yes, there this is. history you would I like? would bring back a katana. 
Okay. A katana is a samurai sword. Oh, now, Slim brought back a, ka uh, a katana uh, because it was uh, a sword given to him by one of the Japanese generals surrendering in Singapore in 1945. I would bring it back, actually, because not because I like swords and I wouldn't put it on the wall and I'm not, I'm not much of a, a person for that sort of stuff. But it does symbolise the end of Japanese militarism. Yeah. So these katanas, in many cases, were several hundred years old. They were family heirlooms. They represented the high point of Japanese militarism. And handing them over to Allied officers at the end of the war demonstrated the defeat of militarism. It has enormous historical significance, these katanas, in, in, in the end of a culture of um, militarism that brought the world to its knees in between 1937 and 1945. And, and I'd bring back that back to remind me that um, militarism has no virtue. It, it only creates disaster. Absolutely. It's an object full of historical power, full of historical weight. And yeah. there's also the picture of it being handed over to Slim as well, which is so symbolic too. Yes. Rob Lyman, yes. it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. I hope you've enjoyed it. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you for coming on Travels Through Time. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Robert Lyman about his new book. A War of Empires, Japan, India, Burma and Britain is newly published. It's a tremendous dive into a fraught period of history, as you heard, and it's richly recommended by us. This is our second episode of this Remembrance Week. If you've not already spotted it, then do check out my conversation with Robert Sackville West on the lost of the First World War. On our website as well, you'll find a fascinating colourised image of the armistice celebrations in New York City in 1918. That's by our friend Jordan Lloyd from Unseen Histories. It's a picture that really does call to mind that haunting poem of Sassoon's On the Armistice. Everyone suddenly burst out singing, and I was filled with such delight. As prisoned birds must find in freedom, winging wildly, across the white orchards and dark green fields on on and out of sight till next time goodbye <laughs> <laughs>